Early in the second century, within living memory of the life of Jesus, churches in the city of Rome received an unexpected letter from the bishop of Ignatius of Antioch, a person whom they had never met before. Bishop Ignatius was a political prisoner of the Roman Empire. The Roman guards had taken him captive during the persecution of Christians in the church in Antioch, and they were escorting him on a long, arduous journey to the capital city of Rome, where he would be executed by lions in the Colosseum. In this remarkable letter, written while on his journey to Rome, Bishop Ignatius tells the churches of his hastening death. But perhaps most astonishingly, he exhorts them not to petition the authorities on his behalf. Instead, he tells them, it is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to be a king over the ends of the earth. I seek him who died for our sake. I desire him who rose for us. Birth pangs are upon me. Suffer, my brethren. Hinder me not from living. Do not wish me to die. Suffer me to receive the pure light. When I shall have arrived there, I shall become a human being. Suffer me to follow the example of the passion of my God. Do you hear those arresting words? Do not wish me to die by keeping me from my martyrdom. Do not hinder me from living by keeping me from death. And perhaps most remarkably at all, he invokes the vibrant image of a woman in birth. And he says that at the moment of his death, he shall become a human being. That is, a human being in the stature of Christ, who alone defines what it means to be human in his incarnate flesh. St. Ignatius knew, uh, St. Ignatius' single treasure was Christ, and his heart was moving him along this difficult journey so he could take hold of it. This brings us, friends, to the meaning of Ash Wednesday, the reason we've all gathered here this afternoon, and indeed the entire Lenten season, the journey about which we're going to, to embark. Ash Wednesday launches us on a journey with Christ into the far country, where in the end he awaits death on a cross. During this journey, we examine our lives. We repent of sin and humbly admit that we are made of dust, and it is to dust that we will return. On Ash Wednesday, we ask ourselves, where is our treasure? And to what end is our heart leading us? But the beauty of this journey is that through Christ, we get to glimpse the final destination. That is, we can see just beyond the horizon to the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection in which we will one day all participate. But make no mistake, there is no other way to resurrection other than by walking the path of death. The path of the cross, as St. Ignatius understood so well. Our scripture texts help us understand the path before us. We span the canon from the prophet Isaiah to the apostle Paul. And we can see within these scriptures the fragility of our own lives, the inevitable course of our own sin on full display. 
First, we turn to the prophet Isaiah, proclaiming God's judgment over the people of Israel for their false piety. At the time of this writing, Israel remains in exile. They are weary, yet hopeful that Yahweh will fulfill his promises to rescue them from slavery and make known his presence to them once again. Wanting to be obedient, Israel keeps a fast. But like all of us, they have missed the mark. Their treasure is misplaced. After all, what good is a fast when, oppressed, when the oppressed remain in slavery? What good is a fast when the most vulnerable are naked and without shelter? What good is a fast when widows and orphans have nothing to eat? Israel stands under judgment, to be sure. But because God is not only the God of judgment, but also and even more the God of mercy, Israel is given a way out, a means of rescue. God says to them unequivocally, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Israel must pour herself out. She must be crucified for those in need if she is to be rescued. She must find her treasure in sacrificial death in order to receive a life of flourishing. For this is the way of the crucified God. Next, we move to the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, standing like Moses among the people of Israel, echoing to them many of the same words we hear in Isaiah. And like her ancestors, Israel's treasure is still misplaced. Notice in the passages that Jesus does not condemn the practices of almsgiving or fasting. Indeed, he assumes them. His condemnation, rather, is pointed at the ends to which these practices are aimed. Give alms, Jesus says, but calibrate the practice of your almsgiving to the joy of the Father alone, not to other people. Indeed, fast, Jesus encourages them, but calibrate the practice of your fasting to the delight of the Father alone, not so other people can congratulate you on your pious deeds. You see, these practices, almsgiving, fasting, and all the rest, are intended to chasten us for greater Christlikeness. They are means of self-denial and self-abnegation. They are tools that tune our hearts to the ultimate end, the ultimate treasure, which is Christ alone. Finally, we come to our elder brother, St. Paul. Writing to the churches in Corinth, Paul provides, proves to be a helpful guide on our journey. In chapter 5, verse 20, as, as Chris read, Paul gives the essence of the gospel in one of the most resonant and remarkable statements written in the whole of scripture, indeed in the whole of Christian literature. He writes, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hear those words again. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
This dense statement is what the great reformer John Calvin called the wondrous exchange. That Christ becomes as we are so that we in turn may become as he is. Lest we think this is a cold economic transaction as if God were a divine accountant filling actuarial tables in front of him, let me provide a warmer, more personal image. Namely, the covenantal union between a man and a woman. At the moment of their covenantal bond of marriage, what is true of the man now becomes true of the woman. And likewise, what is true of the woman now becomes true of the man. Two people instantaneously become one flesh in Jesus Christ. This metaphor communicates what we need to understand about the incarnation of Christ. Christ becomes what we are so that we can become as he is, united to his incarnate flesh and welcomed as full participants in the joyful, unending life of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Out of the wellspring of this gospel, Paul tells the church at Corinth of his litany of sacrifices on their behalf. What is astonishing about this section of the letter is its subversive nature. The only way to get ahead in the Roman world was through what was called the cursus honorum, translated as the courses of honor. The cursus honorum was the fabric of Roman society. It was the equivalent of one's resume in the modern world, only it represented so much more. Through the cursus honorum, a Roman citizen would acquire great wealth and prestige, the right type of friends, memberships, and all the most illustrious clubs as a means of building honor and dignity in Roman society. These accolades would then precede their reputation. They would go before them, and and cities would erect whole monuments and statues to them in the town square. They would be celebrated by everyone. But it, it was more than just for them, those who were in their proximity. Slaves, other friends, people of lower classes who did business with them, they would all benefit from the honor that would be acquired by this one person. There was nothing to be embarrassed about acquiring honor. It was simply the way things were. It was the way to get ahead and live a life of flourishing as a citizen of the Roman Empire. But the rules for social advancement as a citizen of Rome or of any empire or any nation are far different than the rules for social advancement as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You see, in this passage, Paul effectively flips the cursus honorum on its head. Paul presents to the church at Corinth what we know as the cursus pudorum, or the course of ignominy, or course of shame. St. Paul knew that being a citizen of the kingdom of God meant that one did not boast in one's accomplishments. Rather, one boasted in one's failures, in one's disappointments. Paul's audience would have been scandalized to read of his afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings, imprisonments and hunger in a manner that sounded like he was bragging to them. Paul's cursus padorum was a shorthand narration of his journey with Christ to the cross. He knew his treasure was Christ. So he could write with conviction and singular focus that having nothing, he possessed everything. 
that having nothing because of Christ, he possessed everything. Paul understood that the cruciform life was the only one worth living for Christians. The only doorway to the resurrection lies through the cross, through death. Friends, Ash Wednesday reminds us that our death is inevitable. Each of us is one day going to die. But because of the power of God in Christ, death itself is transfigured. In our baptisms, death paradoxically becomes a way of being so that we too can participate in Christ's glorious resurrection one day. As the French theologian Louis Boyer said, Christ did not die so we would not have to. Christ died to give our deaths power. It is only in the way of death, in the way of Christ's cross, that we learn to make Christ our treasure. Only through death are we born as true human beings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.